when I was a very young child, we had friends of the family who were like an alternative set of grandparents to me. Their names were Virginia and Tish. And I think that when I was about two or three, Tish began to lose his sight. And by like maybe when I was four or five around then, he became completely blind. And I look back now on that experience for him, and I think about it from the perspective of an adult, and I think, what would it be like to be in your 60s and over the course of maybe four or five years completely lose your sight and have to learn how to do everything all over again? The, the thought of it as a grown-up fills me with terror. I really can't imagine anything that would be much worse. But then I think about it from the perspective I had when I was three or four, and my experience of Tish was not one which, in which I felt was filled with dread and horror thinking about what his life would be like. In fact, it was the exact opposite. I found his um, increasing blindness kind of this interesting mystery and a sort of a, um, a journey into finding new and fun ways to be alive in different ways. And I remember blinding myself, walking around with a blindfold and trying to find my way through his house. I remember that he had all these cool, I thought at the time, toys. He had a briefcase, that, and it was a combination briefcase, and instead of having numbers, each of the little wheels on the briefcase clicked so you could pick out the right sound, you know, the right amount of clicks, and the combination went by click instead of number to spring open, and I used to play with it all the time. And I loved his cane with the red tip at the end, and I was fascinated how he would walk with it and somehow have eyes on the end of his cane instead of ones that worked in his head. And also, I remember Summers sitting out in the yard with Tish, and I came up with new games uh, to play with him when he became completely blind. And the one I, I remember most was there was this plant sprayer that his wife Virginia had. And I would be as silent as I possibly could in the grass. I'd have my shoes off and as silently as I possibly could, I would get as close as I could and spray his bare feet. And his job was to find me before I sprayed his feet and grabbed me. So it was a game of tag uh, that involved him sitting in a chair. And it, I, it was one of the happiest times in my childhood, my fondest memories. And I do think this is true. I can't ask him to know for sure. But I'm pretty certain that as terrifying as his blindness must have been to him as a grown person, I think there was part of it, at least that part with me, where he was actually able to find what I was finding in his blindness, which was a new and excited adventure into living a different way. And I think that because anytime I was with him, he was happy. And we were really having a good time. And he had endless amounts of time to be with me. So perhaps what happened was 
through my lack of experience knowing that you should be horrified when somebody goes blind, he really had an opportunity, at least in that time, to experience his life in a way maybe he hadn't experienced it before, and strangely even, with new eyes, even if it was only my four-year-old eyes that he had. Which brings me to this story about the man by the Bethsaida pool. This story is fascinating to me because it really focuses on what it means to be made well. So here you have a man who has been sitting by the pool of Bethsaida on a mat, not for two years, not for five years, but for 38 years. And up comes Jesus and bends down by this guy and he asks the question. The question is, do you want to be made well? The answer that the man gives is very important to understanding and following the story. The man does not say, yes, I want to be made well. Instead, the man goes off on a litany of all the reasons it is impossible for him to be made well. Because when the water bubbles up and it's time for people to go into the pool, everybody steps in front of him. So he's never able to be the first person there. And my understanding is that this pool by Bethsaida, even before people who were Jewish went to it, was a pagan site of healing. And the idea was that if you were the first person there, you had the opportunity to be healed. And for 38 years, this man has been in a position that he's never once, because everybody butts in front of him, he's never once had the opportunity to be the first one there. And so this man's experience is that there is no possibility of his being made well. So he must continue to wait for his life because it is unavailable to him now. And then we have Jesus telling him to stand up and pick up his mat and walk. And as often happens, I'm sort of perplexed by how the lectionary is just cut off this morning there because what you don't know unless you've read the story before is that we've only read half of the story. What happens next is that the man picks up his mat and walks away but it's the Sabbath and there is a rule, a religious rule, that you are not supposed to do any physical labor on the Sabbath even if it's just a matter of picking up your mat and bringing it home. And so the man who has been healed by the, by the pool is confronted by good church-going people who say, why is it that you're carrying your mat on the Sabbath? And instead of answering, because I was healed by Jesus, the man, again, completely goes into his old mode, which is to explain why he is unable to live up to the rules of the religious 
community of which he's a part. Well, I would be in compliance if it wasn't for that man who healed me on the Sabbath. It's his fault that I am not being a devout Jew today because of him. It is a joke. You should laugh. It's a joke because I have another complaint. As soon as I'm healed, I have another problem. And then he goes to church. He goes to the temple. By the way, you know what would prevent you from going to temple if you weren't able to walk 2,000 years ago? Your infirmity. If you are unclean, if you have a disability, you are not welcome to the temple. But now this man is completely welcomed into the temple because he can walk. And he sees Jesus. Does he thank Jesus? He points at Jesus and says, here's the man who healed me on the Sabbath. You're angry at me because I'm not obeying the rules, but it's actually his fault. So this man is in this cycle that he's been in for 38 years or more. There is always a reason why things are not right. It's because he is unable to walk. It's because he was healed on the Sabbath. There is always something that prevents him from being completely alive and at peace and whole. There's something that keeps him out, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not his legs are working. Lots of times, and by the way, I know it's human nature. It's absolutely in my nature. When I pray, what I will pray for is God to remove some kind of obstacle that is in my way from being able to go forward with my life the way I want it to be, which is usually the old way. If only this one obstacle could get out of my way, then I could just get on with my way I've planned it. And we understand that when we have any kind of healing that we're asking for, whether it's a physical healing or healing of a relationship, we understand healing to be about have God conform to our wills so that we can move on with the life that we had planned for ourselves. And that is what healing is to us often. It certainly is for me. But one of the things that this story, I think, is opening up for us is a new possibility of a way to understand healing. And a way to understand healing that isn't about you or me having an obstacle removed from our lives so we can get on with the life that we already had planned with for ourselves, which could be this man's plan, the man who'd been laying on this mat for 38 years, was to wait for his life to begin and even when he had an opportunity to begin it, he got what he wanted. He was still waiting for his life to begin. And he was healed, supposedly, but not really, right? There's another way. There's another way to understand God's healing. And it has to do with even in the midst of whatever place you are in your life, whether it's a place of suffering or a place of joy, being available to the presence of Christ in that moment that can allow you to have life where you expected no life. In the middle of difficulties and sometimes hopelessness, to be available to the presence of Christ 
and even in that moment of hopelessness, be able to experience joy. In the church I served before this one, there was this couple who had been going, married at that church sometime in the 50s. I saw the picture on their TV set um, of them sit, standing in front of the, the church doors. And for over 50 years, ever since they'd been married at that church, they were there every Sunday, unless they were sick, and they sat next to each other, third row from the back on the left of me. And at communion, they would stand up together, they would hold hands, they would walk up to the communion rail, they would kneel, and they would receive communion. And they were just such a lovely couple, and I was always moved when I saw them. And I knew, it was interesting, when you get interviewed um, by people of that age in a church, one of the things that they're doing is scrutinizing you as the person who's going to bury them. <laughs> and they were. I know they were sizing me up as the person who was going to be there when their lives came to an end. <coughs> and I was. And eventually what happened is Alberta, Alberta got dementia. And she was no longer able to live with John. And eventually what happened is Alberta wound up in a nursing home and she found her husband entirely unrecognizable. Her husband of 60 plus years. Terrifying. And then John, who I think was being taken care of by Alberta with his diabetes, I guess wasn't able to monitor his own health well enough. And he eventually wound up having to go in for surgery to have his leg removed because of his diabetes. So here I am thinking, it's a Tuesday morning, and I spend the morning over at the nursing home visiting Alberta, who has no idea of who I am, and my plan was to visit Alberta so I could bring word about Alberta to John, who just two days before had had his leg amputated. There are times when it's really not fun to be a priest. And one of the things I was thinking when I was parking at Morristown Memorial Hospital going upstairs to see John is, what the hell am I going to have to say to this guy? I am out. I can't think of anything smart to say that's going to be in any way helpful. And so I walk up to his room. And I'm still, I have no plan. I keep throwing out ideas about things I could possibly say, and everything sounds sentimental or pat or pitiful. And so I sit down to him, and the only thing that can come out of my mouth is, so John, what have you been thinking while you're lying here? And John says, I've been sitting here thinking about how good God has been to me my entire life. I am the most blessed man that you could ever meet. He was well. He was whole. And being with him brought me new life. And those visits with him gave me a deeper faith. When Jesus calls you, Jesus doesn't call you from a life that's filled with difficulty into a life that's filled with ease. Jesus calls you more deeply into your life and says that no matter what happens in it, be present to me and let me give you life even in the midst of death. When Jesus calls you to take a walk, 
Sometimes he does call you into suffering and sometimes he calls you into death. But he always says, take up your mat and walk and follow me into real life. Amen.